yesteryear. Ballyhoo. Review. Greetings and salutations, all you Spallyhoo guys and gals. Tonight we got a program guaranteed to fill your belly with laughs and your brains with knowledge. Yowza. Yowza, so help me. The following program will contain historical context, coarse language, and an abundance of wonderful imitations from our guest. But beforehand, why don't we kick off the program with a little song by one of the loveliest songbirds to ever emerge out of Golden Age Hollywood. Alrighty, boys, take it away. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo will return to the world of the theatrical short cartoons. Yes, that lovely subject that's filled with acme products, gags, side-splitting routines from a bygone age, and an adorable-looking character named Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck. But these will not be centered around things we probably already know. Uh, the things that we haven't been aware of are going to be at the focal point of our discussion today. For in the golden age of Hollywood and its plethora of theatrical short subject cartoons, we are aware more or less of one gentleman who had the on-screen credit uh, as prominent as some others may have today. But in fact, there was not just one man with a thousand voices out there in the golden age of Hollywood. There were a plethora of workaday actors and actresses honing their craft in the, in the ways of dialect, funny sounds, and all-around hilarity. It's a subject that would be heretofore impossible to discuss were it not for our guest this evening. He is a voice actor, a comedian, a historian, uh, whose works include The Moose That Roared and Cartoon Voices of the Golden Age, Volumes 1 and 2. Please welcome to the show the legendary Keith Scott. Well, thank you so much, Mr. <laughs> Eastman. It's so nice. What a, what a nice introduction that was. Yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you something that I've held back from uh, telling you since I've met you? Because um, we, for the audience, we met at the Benny convention where you were That's right. lovingly uh, aboard that Jack in Animation panel where we had um, Bob Singer uh, and uh, Mr. Malton. That's right. Yes. My, uh, my introduction to cartoons primarily starts with Looney Tunes and Disney cartoons and whatnot. But in the summer of 2000, there was a little movie called The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle that my parents took me to see. <laughs> and if I had known that all these years later that I'd be talking to the Bullwinkle himself, I, I'd probably be shedding my pants. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so nice to talk to you here. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> Maybe maybe I should do the rest of the of the podcast in in the voice in the voice of Blue Winkle J. Moe. Let's see. Peter Lynn Hayes was born in this year. <laughs> but welcome. Um now uh, you um you you did something that I thought was impossible with this book because the only other book 
that I have read that is this packed with information I didn't even know I wanted to know was <laughs> Robert Bader's book on the Marx Brothers on stage. Um, yes, and I, I I still don't have that book, and it's on my list. It's it's thick, and it is mm. filled with stuff that I still cannot process. And this is right. a similar situation, but it took it a step further because unlike the Marx Brothers stage work, I can't just go up and pull a YouTube clip up of Alsatias or Animal Crackers on stage. Mm -hmm. yeah. How, however, a lot of the cartoons that are mentioned in your book are pretty accessible on YouTube, especially once you get past the first chapter of the book. Um, right, yeah, because the Warner Brothers ones, I think, are more accessible on Blu-rays and DVDs, but uh, there's restrictions there because of the the the, the keeper of the of the gate, I suppose. Oh yes, yes, I'm familiar with this yeah. modern keeper of the gate. We won't get into that yeah. and my frustrations with it, but <laughs> um, right. I will say that um, it it was also a good eye opener into a big world of animation mm -hmm. that I wasn't familiar with because. As you point out in one of the chapters, a lot of these cartoons were exposed to us through television. Um, yes. And um, yep. that was my exposure point. But I want to know, as somebody who's made a life of not just being a voice artist, but learning more about voice artists, how did this start? How did this, how did this come about for you? You mean for me being in the same industry? Well, or or having an interest in the golden age in general, yeah. Well, my story um, coincided when I met Billy West, uh, um, who's a, a great voice artist in the in the states. Uh, he and I had exactly the same experience, and uh, we're roughly the same age, uh, boomers in our sixties, and uh, um, we um, both fell in love with, I think it was the first cartoons that, that were uh, around about the age that we were ready for and was in 58 uh, with Huckleberry Hound. And and that, of course, was, uh, as I say, in the, at the end of the book, uh, the beginning of TV cartoons made for television ones. And um, they were the ones that... Um, really did show the the voice artists names in, in the credits at the end so from that early age uh as billy west and i both said um after a few weeks of seeing dos butler and don messick under the credit voice uh in huckleberry hound and yogi bear and all of this our heads exploded because even at the age of six or seven we suddenly thought you 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 mean you can actually make a living doing this and it was like it became this this thing like a moth drawn to a flame for the rest of our lives and and especially in my case falling in love with the in those days in both countries of course um, black and white television broadcast nothing but the great movies of the 1930s and 40s so again i i just had this fatal fascination for old time history and uh i remember watching diligently watching hollywood and the stars this 26 part um, tv series hosted by joseph cotton and each episode was um, like um i think the first one i ever saw was the uh, the the biography of jolson and they showed the clip of him singing um, mammy in in the jazz singer and and again it was like this this falling in love with all of this era so um with cartoons as a daily thing in my life and especially one year later with the advent of rocky and bullwinkle again not only loved the voices in that series but started to get an interest 
at an age where I had no idea how I could even research this, of who is the who are these people? Who is Paul Fries and who who is William Conrad and and the and June Foray and all of these great people? And I, as like a detective, when you love a subject, you end up it becomes a life study. And I mean, I'm still studying all of this stuff that I've already written books about uh, here, like you know, 50 years later. And uh, I guess there's something in our obsessive natures that uh, just falls in love with a vintage period that we think had a lot more, uh, I think, integrity and um, and quality control. Mm-hmm. And I just find it a far more interesting period than today where it's a kind of a seen-it-all world, you know? Mm-hmm. Everything's yeah. a little bit more self-aware, um, and it's a little yeah. bit more... Um, it, it's funny, like, I... I I sometimes wonder, and it's a hit and miss, right? But I'll show cartoons from this era to my girlfriend, uh, my sister, you know. Mm. And my sister grew up with these kind of, but she, that wasn't her interest point. Yeah. But it's interesting to see what gags still work and what don't. And surprisingly, the vaudeville humor ends up holding up just just as much as it did back then. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The gags and and the, the set pieces and and the slapsticky stuff, but. Uh, and of course, these days, I suppose with Google, if there's possible to research it, at least begin to research it. That leads me to this book in particular. This seems like this must have taken more than 10 years, more than 20 years. How long did it take for you to acquire everything that's in this volume now? Well, it really it really um, was around about uh, 28 years. Uh, it would have been 30 years in 94 when I um, decided to make it into a book, you know, because I'd been gathering all of this information. Jack Benny's program was one of the things because uh, not only Mel Blanc naturally, but uh, uh, the voice of Screwy Squirrel from MGM cartoons was played by Wally Mayer in in a Benny episode from October of 44, where he did that same Wilbur voice mm-hmm. and various others. There were various other cartoon people that Benny hired like our friend Jack Lescooley, who we discussed before, mm-hmm. all these connections kept happening. And uh, it was like, uh, well, it made, makes perfect sense. You know, as as I got older, it made perfect sense that most of that transpired in, in Hollywood, you know, center of the entertainment industry. And um, the cartoon studios were almost cheek by jowl with the radio networks, the big um, studio places like KNX at Columbia Square in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Or KFWB. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would write on the Warner Brothers uh, lot for the Warner Brothers cartoons on, on Sunset Boulevard there for many years. You know, I found in a lot of the research that I was able to get um, with in- interviews with um, pioneer cartoon makers, the people who hired the actors with, that we love, they would go from watching a broadcast at KFWB, which was on the Warner Brothers studio lot, and walk across to the other side of the, the large lot and, and do a, a cartoon recording with one of the actors who'd just been on radio. Mm-hmm. And that's how Jack Lesgooley uh, was discovered, doing bit parts until he until he was um, inherited this grouch club because he, he knew the writer, Nat Hyken. The, that was, as I said, I, I don't know if I told you, I'm sure I did, the, the, um, where, where Chuck Jones, I met him in, in Sydney in 1990, and he directed Daffy Duck and the Dinosaur with the Jack Benny character, and yeah, the, uh, the and, Casper Caveman, yeah, yes, Casper Caveman, the the the, the character that Jack Lescooley voiced, and I asked him um, if he could remember who did that voice, and he he looked up at the ceiling and immediately said, "Oh yeah, that was a guy called Jack Lescooley." <laughs> and I, I again, it took me like a, a couple of years to figure out that was the same name as the guy who ended up years later hosting the Today Show in New York. 
when I wrote to Chuck Jones a couple of years later, I said, just to, just to clarify, Jack Lesgouli, uh, um, and you hired him. And he said, yes, uh, from the radio, this is a letter he sent me. He said, um, uh, yes, he was a, a friend of Phil Munro, the animator. They used to play tennis together. So tiny, ridiculous connections like that. And you end up with this, this cartoon that goes on and on uh, with, um, gee, you'd be grouchy too if you hadn't had breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> now, come yeah. on, I'm famished. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually one of the ones that uh, I, I, I'm remembering a little bit of this. There was this VHS tape that my great-grandparents had. Um, right. And they just they just put it on for us. And that cartoon, along with yeah. um, the Jekyll and Hyde one uh, that Daffy finds himself in that house in the swamp yelling for Chloe. Um, yes, that, yeah, that yes. those were on it. And I, rem I I didn't realize that that was a Benny impression at the time. You're a kid. You're not no. thinking that right away. But uh, the right. the thing that you got at with the Grouch Club, too, is that they're pulling other people from radio as well. Um, and, oh, yeah. And Arthur Q. Bryan was one of those people as well. well. He was the regular each week on the Grouch Club. Yeah. He played this character called the Little Man. And that was the one that they heard. Tex Avery heard um, Arthur Q. Bryan on the Grouch Club just at the time he was morphing one character called uh, Egghead into this Elmer Fudd character and wanted to use his voice. But he used him first in a cartoon, um, which was a, a send up of the Robert W. Service poem, um, the, the shooting of Dan McGoo, mm -hmm. uh, or Dangerous Dan McFoo was the Warner Brothers one. And he used Arthur Q. Bryan first of all, the first cartoon Arthur Q. ever did. But he still did uh, that, that uh, widow thing who couldn't point out, couldn't pronounce that it, the widow are probably, you know, and, and <laughs> la later he said, oh, well, what a, what a great character for a timid hunter, you know, but, uh, but originally he he was just some some stranger who came into the um, Alaskan bar, you know. And uh, but just because he'd heard him on the Grouch Club with this great character voice, he often said uh, many of the great great voices just came from radio, you know. Uh, they inspired a character in our minds. Yeah, and you had also in there uh, another person from the Grouch Club ended up being, I believe, it was the like more or less the grand overall narrator for a lot more of those austere oh, uh, cartoons. Um, Robert Bruce. Robert yeah. Bruce, yeah. And I was yes. actually kind of fascinated to kind of listen to their tremors uh, and and how they were providing the straight man effect, specifically in right. Warner Brothers cartoons. Yes. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's something that I think, like when, when we talk about uh, a comedy piece on this program, like we've done a couple of Burns and Allen shows that are... Um, Burns and Allen films at this point, I should say. Ah, uh, right, and, right. And we find a lot of appreciation for George and consequently for Bud Abbott whenever we're talking mm -hmm. about him because it's one thing for us to laugh at Gracie and Lou, but you're, you're, yeah. you're watching the, the, the timing at work. It's only working if he's there and it only works yeah. if Bruce is giving that setup before Mel Blanc yeah. knocks it down with some kind of funny voice. Exactly, yeah. And and I think the, the first time they did... They used Robert Bruce. It was uh, on purpose because, um, again, they'd heard a slightly pompous sound to the uh, narration on some of those uh, MGM travelogues like uh, <laughs> Fitzpat Fitzpatrick Travel Talks. And uh, they wanted to recreate that that uh, feeling of um, mock pomposity. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, as you say, as a, as a counterpoint to the comedy. Yeah. And, it, and it's, yeah. it's one of those, like, it's one of a series of things that, Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies in particular were expert at, but 
we're going to be talking right. a little bit more about how Looney Tunes kind of falls into this because part of what we're talking about today is imitations in particular. Mm -hmm. But right. let's talk about some things that this book contains. First of all, like you, uh, for people who are out there who are teetering on the fence about whether or not they should buy this, first of all, that's a stupid thought. You should be buying it. <laughs> um, but the second thing is, is that you actually divide it up by the studios um, or the mm -hmm. production companies in general. And it's not just this is who did what. It's a history of the studios themselves. And uh, I have never seen the history of Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies so concisely but appropriately displayed. And it does. Oh, thank you. It does feature elements of the animation, which I'm sure artists would love to draw upon too. But it does focus not just on the voice artists, but these musicians and these sound yes. engineers. Treg Brown right. has never had a biography so glowing than watching how much he affected every aspect of these tunes that is in this book. Yeah. And Treg was, Treg is not just the guy who's kind of responsible for getting Mel Blanc in the door, but he mm -hmm. is, he's a master at sound effects and basically invented an art form. Well, it's sim very similar to what happened years later at UPA, the, the um, Magoo studio, because, um, when when Spike Jones and his his great band of comedy genius musicians were uh, uh, working less, uh, they all got jobs in the editing department, the same as Treg Brown, you know, that sort of thing of the putting the soundtracks together. And as Skip Craig said in my other book, The Moose That Roared, he was the editor at J. Ward Productions. He said that all of the all of this depends on musical beats, especially the theatrical cartoons of the 30s, mm -hmm. where everything um, was based on songs and and uh, action to music. So these guys, being ex-musicians, just had the an innate sense of the right sound effect or the right uh, beat for that. And uh, and also because they'd done novelty songs, they they understood comedy. Mm -hmm. They just relied on experts in those days, unlike today where there's committees who who scout people and uh, audition eight hundred people before they make a decision. They just uh, in those days there was some feel that people like Leon Schlesinger just said, "Well, this guy knows what he's on about, so I'll leave him alone." You know? Yeah. And he, he he created magnificent stuff. Yeah, and that seems to be whereas the opposite was there was a more of a rigidity over at MGM, which. Uh, that's another thing that the book does is that I, I have never been, I, I watched my share through Boomerang or Cartoon Network of Tom and Jerry, uh, uh -huh. uh, uh, Screwy Squirrel, um, but right. also um, uh, Droopy Dog. And I yeah. didn't realize how rigid a system they had at that studio, how it was a little bit less freeing. And the the way yeah. I was able to suss that out through the book is that Frizz Freeling went over there for a time and then mm. left after he was yeah. just like, I can't work under these conditions. Yeah, he was very disappointed. He, he apparently he'd been promised certain freedoms and uh, and uh, Fred Quimby was a guy who like ran the place, I guess, the in the in the sense that Schlesinger ran it. But uh, he was a far more rigid, old school person who uh, was uh, pretty humorless from uh, all accounts and uh, yeah. <laughs> running a cartoon factory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That well, that's like that's the sense I get of Leon Schlesinger is sort of more or less of just like I don't really care if this is what yeah. what this is. Just make me money, damn it. Like yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but whereas the the counterpart obviously is Walt Disney, who's near the more the later half of the book. Like right. that's that's a more hands on. I'm putting my artists through school. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. going to give them yeah. the boot camp of their lives. 
when we talked about the the sound processes on a previous episode not too long ago when we were doing Disney in the 30s and 20s. Wow. Uh, yeah. There was just the and there was a lot to go through, but you ended up kind of sussing out some stuff that I I was heretofore I was aware of it, but I wasn't aware to the extent of it. But Mel Blanc, who's the man of a thousand voices, the most legendary mm -hmm. person in this art form. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's something that I think when people hear it, they go, they get a little cross-eyed for a second, which is that they're actually speeding that voice up, uh, that they're right. using technology around them. And I, I love how you describe this in the book. And I kind of wanted to uh, uh, give, a, give a thing for... Uh, for folks, uh, this is regarding the adjustment of Mel Blanc's voice. Mm -hmm. As noted earlier in the book, several of Blanc's famous character voices were pitched, changed mechanically. This was achieved through a variable speed oscillator where, when he was recording directly on film and later electronically with audio tape, which was introduced in 1947, thanks to blah, 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 boom, Bing Crosby. Yep. Blanc's <laughs> own vocal equipment, uh, always a little naturally coarse grew increasingly so with age, and so speeding his voice was necessary, especially for the proliferation of small and cute characters in the 50s like Tweedy, Sylvester Jr., Speedy mm -hmm. Gonzalez. Blank and Stan Freeberg were both sped up for two sets of co-starring roles, the chronically OC-polite Goofy Gophers and as the wisecracking mice duo of Hubie and Bert. Of course, the earliest right. star characters Porky Pig and Daffy Duck had been sped up from the beginning and Daffy was by this time basically a pitched up Sylvester voice. Now I'll stop there because mm -hmm. the you, this this all seems extremely complicated before audio tape. D can you explain for people listening who are kind of getting a beginner's course in how these things were recorded at the time what they were doing in the Vitaphone era? And just right after, you know, Fox, the Fox Case Lab stuff got adopted by all the studios. Right. Yeah. Well, in the very earliest days um, for Warner Brothers, they adopted the Vitaphone process, which was recording direct to these gigantic discs uh, yes. records that were then synchronized with the projector. And uh, they, in fact, the whole of not only the US, but the world, uh, when the sound revolution came, had to, you know, that's where the expression wired for sound came from. They all had to spend enormous amounts of money and change their theatres to accept sound film. But they, the competing system was already being developed when sound was introduced, which was a, re a method of recording on film. And it, it was only um, a short time after Vitaphone took off that uh, the Warner engineers realised that film was going to be a much better medium to record straight to uh, for voice. And uh, I've I've never seen the um, the actual machines up close, although I've seen photographs of them. But they were gigantic uh, machines with these enormous rolls of film, and uh, the blank film would record audio and be married uh, in a. I guess what they they would now say is a primitive version of what we call mixing today, where you have the different tracks. Mm -hmm. And today, of course, it's multi tracks. But uh, back then, it was um, and always has been in the film industry. Um, uh, dialogue, music, and effects, uh, which they call the M and D tracks, and uh, and at the end of a cartoon, when it was all animated, whatever sound had been recorded previously, like the dialogue um, and the particular takes of the dialogue had been chosen, uh, then they were sent with the completed animation to what's called a dubbing session, which was just before the film was released and sent to theaters, and that was where on a giant screen. 
four or five engineers were sitting at a desk getting the balances right so that the dialogue wasn't drowned out by the music and all of this. And uh, and that was, you know, it seems like such a modern thing with today's technology, but uh, a lot of that uh, art form was developed back in the late 20s, early 30s, which that just seems amazing today to a lot of young people because they 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 just get the impression that 100 years ago is so so back in the caveman era that it's impossible to um, think of. Yeah, know? no, it's, it's not, it's, it's all the technologies there, but like you, you stop, you have to stop and think about how someone needed to have the motivation, like a Sam Warner to say like, well, right. let's, let's add music to this. And then, Oh, right. Jolson starts right. talking. All right. I guess this is a talking movie now. Yes. Uh, and I know yes. that obviously it's a little bit more intricate than that. And that will be discussed in a future episode. Um, actually right. not too long from now, but I mm-hmm. wanted to point out too that you brought up the idea of like, you know, they're brought in to then do the, do all the final mixes and whatnot. There is a huge gap. And I was shocked to learn this in the book from the time that they record to the time they get on screen. Right. It's what a year. Once, once, uh, they really perfected the art, um, the process of storyboarding it having that approved, then getting the dialogue recorded um, was only the beginning. <clears throat> the physical labor of the animation and the layouts and um, then the laborious ink and paint technique, uh, which have all been now supplanted by uh, you know machinery, but uh, um, back in those days was what they called a very labor intensive industry. Um, it was it was almost like factory where every department was uh, and and they just learn, as I point out somewhere in the book, they learn so much from the beginning of Sound Steamboat Willie that Disney did with Mickey Mouse up until Snow White, which was only nine years. And by then the art had been so perfected that uh, they coasted along for the next 10 years, just getting sharper and sharper. But they they'd perfected so much by 1937 um, that it's amazing to me. But uh, yes, it did take... Uh, often up to one year after the dialogue was recorded. That's why in some of these <clears throat> cartoons, for instance, in 1947, they released a slick hair, uh, Bugs Bunny thing, where uh, some of the gags that had been approved in the storyboard and, and recorded, like a, a, a caricature of Ray Milland in The Lost Weekend, was now almost 18 months old, so that by the time the audience had to remember that that was a very memorable movie and a great performance, but uh, it wasn't um, just today's headlines, you know. And that's why I say with the one that you 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 were going to mention, the big birdcast, the Columbia cartoon. They they did the they did a a joke about the Jack Benny and Fred Allen radio feud, and yet that by the time the cartoon was released, the <clears throat> the feud was over a year old. Right, but it was still yeah. it was still a like because I, I had read that portion of the not just the slick hair, but also the prior mention of just like there's a year between give or take, right. like there's time in right. between. But given the fact, like I was actually shocked that it was that soon behind because the first thought that I had when I read that information was, so that's why there's so many Joe Penner want to buy a duck gags in yes. these cartoons. Yes. That would yeah. That's the only reason that yeah. that makes sense because my whole, whole understanding with Penner was that he was a 
it's not that he wasn't talented, but like the want to buy a duck thing is like in and out really quick. It was, yeah. It, it just became such a memorable catchphrase of nonsense that uh, that was the one they latched onto and kept repeating. Mm-hmm. Although he had a, he had a lot of others that Tex Avery used, uh, like um, "You nasty man, don't ever do that," <laughs> you know, and things. And I think uh, for a little while, uh, in from thirty seven to thirty nine, the Penner Show was the highest rated one with children. Uh, it was on on weekends in Hollywood, and it did use um, a lot of actors, including Mel Blanc. Uh, I've got a lot of episodes of that where he, a very young Mel Blanc, you can hear him developing characters, but he's not by any means a well-known person. Um, Jack Lescouli does the Jack Benny in one of the Joe Penner shows, and Peter Lind Hayes does the Fred Allen that Jack Benny ended up using Lind Hayes for in on his show. Yeah. A lot um, of the early thirties episodes, I believe of Jack or the late thirties, because he started yeah, doing 30s. that. Like I remember the toothache one where he goes into the dentist and uh, right. suddenly Fred Allen's just threatening to throw it out with diet. <laughs> He's going to pull his teeth out with dynamite. It's just, it's like every time somebody I'd tells me with dynamite, Jack. <laughs> hand me but, that dynamite, um, Mrs. Day. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, the, the Joe Penner show was pretty because, uh, again, uh, like at Warner Brothers, um, one of the regulars on on not only the Grouch Club, but the Joe Penner show was Phil Kramer, who was a, a little uh, guy who played this nebbish character that he actually sounded like in real life. Mm-hmm. And in every Joe Penner one, he'd suddenly just appear with, um, hello, Joe. <laughs> and Tex Avery ended up using him as the MC in, in Hammer Night where he introduced all the acts like and of course he had just a perfect voice for car- animated cartoons because and and Robert Bruce when I spoke to him the late Robert Bruce who was the the narrator the guy that we were talking about said that um one day he he remembered Phil Kramer vividly all his life because he was so unique he's just this little guy who had this one voice like Arthur Q Bryan's Elmer Fudd and he said one day they they had finished a broadcast and they, and they were waiting at the door to get to their cars because it was pelting down with rain. And Robert Bruce finally said, Oh, what the hell? I'm going to make a run for it. I'll see you later, Phil. And Phil Kramer said, I forgot to bring my umbrella. And so in real life, he actually talked exactly like that. Oh my God. <laughs> like that cartoon voice, you know, that, that... these are, these are things that like when I, when Robert Bruce told me that that's something that you can't translate into a printed thing in the book, you have to hear that anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> no, that that's, that is something to point out is that like, there's one thing that I, it actually makes me think like, because this is coming through Bear Manor Media and whatnot. I'm just like, I'm just thinking like an audiobook needs to happen at some point where you can repeat the lines in 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 your imitable fashion. But the you brought up this 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 point of them sounding like this in real life. And additionally, mm-hmm. there is a the gathering of dialect humorists uh right. and um and vaudeville comics into this fold. Uh mm-hmm. uh I think it's it's a I think it's a part of comedy from the past that I always determine it by comfort level. Yeah. But the dialect humorists of this era were people I didn't realize could pull off dialect. Billy Bletcher is my big mm-hmm. go-to here. Um, oh yeah, I must have been living in a hole, Keith, because I didn't realize he was the uh, the father owl in "I Love to Sing." Yes, as a matter of fact, um, in one of his um, articles about him, he said that was one of the first dialects he did as a young guy, um, uh, an Austrian, because he used to be a singing waiter and he'd sing dialect songs. 
And so he did this sort of, you know, because he had that that incredibly resonant voice. Yeah. And uh, if you hear him just in an interview, he's talking like this all the time. It's it's just Peg Lake Pete. It's that's all it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he did that, and he did uh, a couple of Irish cops in some Donald Duck cartoons, and uh, it was just so commonplace back then. And and uh, I I don't think. It really, um, it wasn't until around about the early 40s that um, offense began being taken, was, which, you know. Would that have been when Fred Allen had Minerva Pius on as Mrs. Nussbaum? Because I know that that got some flack back in its day. Yeah, it got some flack. And I think uh, the war where uh, everything was, um, especially like with the, the black conscripts, uh, they they took offense to some of the gags in coal black. Mm. And I think um, some people, of course, of course, a lot of people uh, realized that none of these characters like Mrs. Nussbaum or, uh, or the black caricatures and all that were ever done with any malice mm-hmm. um, because there was no mean spiritedness about it. It's just that some residual things that were cliches at the time now look mean spirited, like uh, yeah. razor carrying razors. In fact, the, as you know, on the, on the Jack Benny program in some of the early, um, Rochester yeah. appearances. Uh, there's some of those unfortunate ones that don't hold up today. Right. And I, I'm i sure if Jack was around, he'd say, you know, it, it, it's just um, it, at that time, we just didn't have our radar on and, you know, we weren't thinking. He was actively aware of it because then around mm. 1945, when he's seeing what's coming out of Europe, he's like, all right, time out. Um, no more watermelon jokes, no more gin jokes. Right. But you point out in the book too, not just about Cole Black, which is, which was on my mind when, when I got to that section of the book, I'm like, oh my God, I love that he's dedicating this much time to this. Um, you pointed out the uh, number of African-American voice artists that were contracted to do voices for that. And -hmm. some of the people who didn't get, who who weren't available. Like I think Louis Armstrong was a name I was reading on there. Oh like, yeah, no, no. Clampett wanted Louis Armstrong for sure. Yeah, yeah, I could see why. And but there's also the additional factor of people like Lillian Randolph being a part of the Tom and Jerry cartoons for an early right. time. And and I yeah. I I look at that as an interesting. It's an interesting aspect of the industry, which has it has its flip sides. Yes, mm-hmm. the, the imagery sucks, um, yeah. but you are watching people performing their craft and doing a good job of it. Oh yeah. Well, Lily, Lillian Randolph, especially because she she was only ever all praise for the cartoon directors. She never had a bitter word to say about the, playing a domestic, and yet that's what she was playing um, every week for uh, I think fifteen years on the Great Gildersleeve. You know, Birdie, the, yep, the housemaid. Yeah. Um, mind you, I, she did actually start doing the the Tom and Jerry and Disney housemaid before the Gildersleeve series went to air. Yeah. And then wasn't that also like slack that was slightly based, if I'm remembering the book correctly on something from the three orphan kittens um, cartoon from Disney. Yeah. And so like her artistry there and the artistry of those who were in some of these other short subjects and whatnot, and, Mm -hmm. and let's extend it also into Italian dialect and, um, and and other dialects that these ones like they all, all almost created kind of a melting pot aesthetic. Totally, yeah. And what I find interesting is that the the amount of people that they got in to do these, mm. you don't. This is leading to one of the obvious questions that 
uh, would be asked of you having written this book. But the amount of names that I was going through were hard to keep up with for good, mm-hmm. for good reason. This is something that I can go back to. I can go back to this and I can find a name that yeah. I'm looking for. Right. You explained it in the book, but I'd love for you to explain to the audience, how did you track what seems like over 100 to 150 to 2,000 people down for this book? Well, how I physically did it um, really in fits and starts from a multitude of different sources because there was no discipline for this because there were so few paper records kept of the actual people employed. So it yeah. came from um, not only my years of uh, thank thank. God, I started listening to old-time radio in 1973 and got hooked on that as much as I did on animation and old movies um, <clears throat> because of the voice component. Um, and I I would say probably about 20 of the names that are real regulars throughout the book were ones that I just heard, along with my late research associate, Hames Ware, um, on many radio shows and thought, found it. I've finally found this guy. And when you found someone in a radio show that matched a cartoon, that suddenly suddenly took care of maybe another 30 to 40 cartoons that that same voice appeared in. So, you know, that part of it was solved quickly, but there were millions more. And so some of them came from um, finding that there were these radio casting books in the 1940s that only only people in the industry used. But they were like the the Academy Players directories where you see a picture of the actor and their latest film credits each year. And these books had um, not only all the radio credits that these people were currently doing and a photograph of them, um, but uh, little specialties underneath, like uh, all the accents that they specialised in or uh, mimicry. They could also imitate movie stars, etc. those little things. And then finding some of them even listed cartoons in their thing. So it made you narrow that down even further and say, okay, now I recognize this actor because I went and listened to these shows that this person's in. And that was researching through John Dunning's books, you know, things like that. And then going back to the cartoon and saying, yep, that makes sense because of this person advertising their wares in these casting guides. Mm -hmm. Then Yelp has been very helpful too because of his trolling through all the newspapers uh, on search engines and finding tiny little casting things. And a lot of the ones that he found confirmed guesses that I had made, but I wanted to put question marks next to, and I was able to remove question marks for about 30 names that he finally found confirmed our earlier research. So there was literally no discipline to the way we we put all of this together. As you pointed out, sometimes it becomes a bit overwhelming, the amount of names. And I the biggest thing I had to do was figure out a way to write the book, like putting all the historical background of the studios in so that it didn't appear like a, a shopping list of a thousand names right, that would right. be just meaningless to people who even if they Googled them, they'd probably have trouble getting to the essence of w- what we found out, which took those 30 years. But uh, And then the the best, the, the absolute best answer to your question was that uh, after several years, I was able to get into Warner Brothers Archive and the Disney Archives and all of that, and there was paperwork there. I found for the 1940s, Leith Adams, who ran the um, archive, and I we couldn't find anything. And finally, he's, he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think... In the 40s, 30s and 40s, I think the music department was the people that they used to get billing for. So we found boxes called music department payroll records. And sure enough, there was there were weekly folders for each year. So there were 52 folders per year. And it had that week's recording at Warner Brothers, in uh, like for feature films and short films and dubbing. 
voices and suddenly you'd find a page that said cartoon three production numbers like uh, on one day they recorded three cartoons and there's mel blank's name and the fee he was paid i, I reproduced a couple of them in the in the uh, yeah, middle yeah. of volume one yeah they were called requisition for extra talent that's right yeah yeah we confirmed kent rogers for instance who we we had we had come to believe was a mimic who bob clampett had described to us but he was one of these people that we couldn't find anything on in any newspaper search or anything, or uh, maybe one little reference in one of those radio casting books where he finally confirmed 12 movie star voices for Hollywood Steps Out. It was like one of those days where it was like the Holy Grail jumping for joy saying, there it is, you know, it's finally confirmed. <laughs> but but then finding these Warner Brothers records called, uh, you know, Music Payroll, there is his name for cartoons that we had possibly guessed were him and there again this is confirmation so then we were finally able to say okay that voice matches these ones at mgm it's exactly the same vocal quality and so that's it, it really was a a matter of um process of elimination yeah, yeah whatever whatever is impossible however improbable is the truth or yeah you know exactly, whatever yeah. that whatever that detective in london said that one time um <laughs> no um, but I, I did make sure in the filmographies though that i i still put question marks to people that we still haven't confirmed because i don't there's been so many so much guesswork on internet movie database and all of this uh where there were pure mistakes you know that have been published and so many people have bought those mistakes over the last couple of decades yeah, there, so. there's a um, that you brought up Kent Rogers, and mm -hmm. um, so that's actually a good segue into some tunes, some tune talk, if you will. Um, sure. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about in regards to your book, which mm -hmm. I think we've done a good job of setting up more, like w without giving everything away, because you've got to pick up the book, guys. If you don't pick up the book, <laughs> you're not getting all the fun treats inside. But, um, but you, um, I, I fell on the subject of the fact that I might be among the last generation possibly that grew mm -hmm. up with these cartoons on Saturday morning television, right. um, or on afternoon television on the Cartoon Network blocks. But I remember that a lot of the cartoons when they didn't have our notable, Bugs Bunny, Tom and Jerry's, all that whatnot. They were mostly Hollywood par there was a lot of Hollywood parodies out there. Um oh, yeah. where it was yeah. just an excuse to make fun of that particular studio's stock players. And mm -hmm. I think it's responsible, at least to my mind, for me, for me diving even further. I don't think I would have had as much interest in watching Casablanca the first time that I did had I not right. seen you've got just five minutes to give me that rabbit or else. <laughs> um, but yes. I wanted to yeah. ask, like, uh, as a precursor to that, is that how you ended up finding some older films of the past? Or was it just kind of in tandem with, with what was being aired at the time? Well, because I'm, I'm a, at least a generation older than yourself. Uh, oh, I think stop it. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I look like Rodney Dangerfield. I'm getting old, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I walked past the cemetery, two guys with shovels ran after me. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I think in those days, it, it, your last observation was the correct one because uh, uh, there were so many black and white movies literally every seven days a week and uh, and cartoons were also being broadcast at the same time, all in black and white, of course, in those days, you know, from the old Fleischer Popeyes to, um, to Disney uh, on the Mickey Mouse Club and the Bugs Bunny show and 
and the TV cartoons. So they all existed in this world in 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 my life with uh, all these ancient movies that were being shown. And so I knew the minute I saw a caricature of W.C. Fields in a cartoon that I'd already seen a W.C. Fields movie mm-hmm. um, because all of this was just being aired at the same time. So it was slightly easier, I guess, in that sense uh, in those days because everything is fragmented these days, as I point out, you know, with the the march of technology and, and cable and then the internet, you know, it's a whole different world that no, none, none of us could have predicted back then. And it, certainly the people who came before me who made the cartoons. It's, it's, it's accessible while at the same time, it's becoming more of a scavenger hunt every year. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, right. that's kind of the, cause I, I will tell you right now that I, for years as a child, I didn't know who Ned Sparks was. Right. I just thought that this guy was the inspiration for Squidward. <laughs> but, right, yeah. Which, yeah. Or, or a crab in that cartoon, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and like, Hollywood steps out for me as that first one that I want to, like, circle around because of Kent Rogers. Right, yes. If I was placing money, Vegas odds, before reading your book, my assumption would have been, well, maybe it's mostly Mel Blanc, but then there's a couple of other people running around. Mel only does right. one voice in this cartoon, and it's Cherry Colonna. <laughs> right. And and actually, and the funny thing is Kent Rogers could do a better Jerry Colonna in, in the MGM Who Killed Who, where he's all the bodies falling out of the uh, out of the closet. And finally, it just one of them stops before he falls and says, ah, a lot of us out there. <laughs> <laughs> I do like but, his uh, Yehudi gag in, in Hollywood yes. Steps Out. It is a nice little Yehudi gag. It is. But, yes. but Kent Rogers <laughs> does. And I, I, I got, this is from volume two. He does mm-hmm. Cary Grant. James Cagney, Bubba Bing Crosby, Edward G. Robinson, Mickey Rooney, Louis Stone, James Stewart, Peter Laurie, Clark Gable, Ned Sparks, Henry Aldrich, and Groucho Marx. Right. I have not... I love Mel. I really do. Mm-hmm. I, right. I, I adore that man with a passion. Oh, yeah. But re-watching Hollywood Steps Out at least five to ten times before this, <laughs> before this discussion, I just right. couldn't... I couldn't believe that variety existed uh, because yes, I have yes. never heard anybody do a good Cary Grant impression apart from this cartoon before. Right. And yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cause it's not it's, an actual accent. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But, but he was, he was, he was gifted at impressions because some of the guys who did impressions had one or two good ones and a couple of weak ones, mm-hmm. but Kent Rogers re- and the most remarkable thing about him was um, when he passed away, he was only 21. So he was a teenager when he did these voices. That's even that's even more accomplished than Rich Little or somebody who came decades later. Oh yeah, because um, these were you know going to be shown to the world on giant theatre screens, and so they had to be good. And Tex Avery always auditioned several people, so uh, he he landed on Kent Rogers. But mind you, Bob Clampett had used him first, so I think he probably had done an audition for Treg Brown where his wares had been demonstrated. So it was uh, oh we got to get this young kid Rogers because he's. He's the best at, at Cary Grant. And, all. and uh, we finally found like one, I think I mentioned it somewhere in the Walter Lance chapter, a, a newspaper item that mentioned Kent Rogers and Dick Nelson are the go-to guys mm-hmm. on radio, of course. I've got one episode of a series that uh, uh, Dick Nelson does impressions on called, it was a one-season series called Which is Which, and it was um, movie stars 
or is it an impersonation? And the the cliche that they used in one of the Warner Brothers cartoons came from that radio show. It says, is our guest tonight the real deal or is it a reasonable facsimile thereof? You know, and, <laughs> and it was Dick, Dick Nelson doing Frank Morgan as the Wizard of Oz in one of them. And he did that in the, in a Walter Lance cartoon called Mother Goose on the Loose. So then that, like, you, you brought up about we have one or two impressions mm-hmm. and then we're like, we're kind of just checking out the door. This brings to mind the numerous amount of Bing Crosby imitators that are out there. Right. We've got yes. one of them in here. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you're all enjoying this little hoedown. Comes now a bit of the... Get away from me, boys. You bother me. Uh, it, it leads to something that I'd always had a question about, but I just assumed, why bother asking? I'm not going to know the answer. Mm. Was, did any of these stars have an issue with their likeness being portrayed on these cartoons right. right and apparently because thanks to your book you found an article about one such incident where bing crosby and i think it was was it paramount or was it just crosby enterprises bing crosby enterprises yeah that's right yeah but it was really uh, uh first of all i had to go back to the beginning in the very early merry melodies that Harmon and ising made it uh, because rudy ising did did say even in those days, and I'm talking 1931, when the first Merry Melodies were produced, um, and they were going to to imitate, they had to get permission even then. So lawyers had already set up the fact that these people, these famous people, had a right to their image. And and but the only time, I mean, there was also a common talk around the industry in those days that uh, most of the people in show business, including big stars, were utterly and completely delighted at being caricatured. And loved it, and uh, and were flattered. Don't often asked for a drawing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, can I have one of the drawings of me? I'm going to pin, pin it up. And uh, it was in one cartoon they used a guy who did a couple of mid thirties Bing Crosby voices. But but it wasn't his fault. It was the character. The way they they did Bing's character in that one cartoon was that uh, he ended up being a coward with a yellow streak as he ran away at the end. And I think that was the worry that it was his image that was going to be affected. It wasn't the voice as much. Um, in fact, I've got Bing Crosby in that same year on a 1936 episode of the Craft Music Hall, where he had the Radio Rogues as guests, and they were the three impressionists who did voices for Columbia cartoons and so. And um, Henry Taylor, who was one of the Radio Rogues did a Bing Crosby to Bing's face on the radio and cracked him up because um, he not only did the the um, did the whole thing with Bing's voice and then he then he then he did a little bit of singing and then he then he did the and and that cracked Bing Crosby up because oh you got the laugh you got the whistle <laughs> that's uh, it's 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 lovely to kind of sift through the different ones that. Um, that you'll find in various cartoons. I love the Hollywood steps out one because it, it references his racehorses, but I was, I did right. go, I went back to Hollywood Daffy uh, last night just for kicks. And I do love when Daffy's trying to go in. And at one point he just walks in and goes, when my dream comes home, <laughs> then gets thrown out. Um, but that, right. that racehorse gag, that was something where I was like, Oh, that's, I don't know if that's the first time I've seen that, but that's like one of the that's one of the few times where I see it as like a repeated gag. And that was definite, definitely on radio. I mean, they they used to do that as a as a regular weekly thing. Some of his guests would make fun of of one of his horses, and uh, and of course those cartoons 
younger people must remember that these cartoons first premiered in theatres when everyone had a radio in their house and seven days a week, like the animators and people who made the cartoons, the audiences were listening to these same radio comedies and they got so many of the gags that today's audiences don't get because they were instantly recognizable, you know? I will tell you of one that my, I had to explain to my girlfriend, which was um, the Henry Fonda gag. Uh, Henry! That one, that, that one took a bit of explaining. Like, all right, so there's the That's old rich right. family, and there's there's this guy who's like in his 40s, but he's voicing a teenager, and blah 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 yes. blah. Um, but there's another voice in here that uh, is one of a t- dynamic duo, Sarah, Sarah Burner. Oh yeah, and, yeah, she was, she was like like before June Foray, she was the most like the woman of a thousand voices. You know the cliche. And um, and again, so much on the Jack Benny program too, is that that off key singer, a girlfriend, and uh, and then later on as one of the two telephone operators. I think she's. I think she's Mabel, and B. Benaderet is. Oh, Gertrude. Yeah. yeah speaking <laughs> of B. Benaderet, um, right? We uh, I I got um, I, at one point I got to the part of your book about B. Benaderet being the voice of that Cass Daly Red Riding Hood, right? <laughs> and I was like. Oh my God, I haven't thought about that in years. And I played it for my girlfriend and she starts doing the da 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 And she was like, why won't she shut up? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I was like, well, oh, it was, I, <laughs> that, and it was also in World War II that there was all that raucous humor and, and escapist humor because people were tense the whole three or four years of yeah. the war, you know. And um, and Cass Daly was often on those shows like Command Performance, where she just did this loudmouth, crazy woman. Um, it's like tied for Martha Ray a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Martha Ray was, as you know, also caricatured a lot in the late '30s cartoons. Um, and uh, yeah, B. Benadera just happened to do that particular character voice. Although most of the cartoon voices she did in the later 40s and 50s were more the housewife types who, who you know, owned the bulldog and that sort of thing. But she was also such a great radio performer. These people just had a, a an affinity for it. And uh, in fact, in one, there's one uh, cartoon, I think it's called Kit for Cat, a Daffy Duck. I think. And uh, just as a throwaway gag, the, the radio gets turned on and it's a send up of a soap opera. And the woman says, but Melvin, yes, Beatrice. And so they're, they're even sending up who they are, Mel Blank and B. Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and just, just before I forget, also going back to that thing about lawsuits, the only other one that was ever a possible threat was the uh, the strange Bob Clampett cartoon called Bacall to Arms, which uh, was the beginning of the relationship of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall yeah. into Have and Have Not. And they did that scene where they they animated that famous scene where she said, if you want anything, just whistle. And um, and Clampett had gone ahead and, and lifted the soundtrack from the movie. And then a, um, a lawyer came running in saying, oh, we can't use it, we can't use it. In Humphrey Bogart's contract there's a clause that forbids a, a secondary use of his image and so they had to find impersonators so they got sarah burner and dave barry to do bogart and bacall for that yeah but that again that was just a possible law you know threat from a lawyer you know yeah it seems like more often than not like i think the, those were the only two that i saw and they were only in that one chapter i wasn't seeing right, anything yeah. even in the mgm or the columbia's or anything 
because oh, I think they, they all were pretty cautious about at least having the legal department approach the management of these actors and say, we're just going to carry Oh, Sure. Go ahead. You know, it seemed like Jack didn't care that much because he was oh, he loved it, yeah. how many times before he even finally did the mouse that Jack built, That's yeah. which which, by the way. Uh, that notice that I found in Variety back for that panel about a Jack Bunny character, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I still think Kathy might be right. It might just be like this one little plant item. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. The more I keep finding another Jack Bunny cartoon that isn't listed on Laura's site, like uh, the, the one that I found was The Woods Are Full of Cuckoos. And I don't remember that yeah. one being listed on her list. I, I could be wrong. But that one Well, was, again, it's probably such a brief appearance because there's like 40 characters in that movie, in that seven-minute short. Yeah. And uh, she might have missed that. But 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 he'd already been called Jack Bunny from uh, I Love to Sing Her, you know, when uh, little Al goes in for the talent quest. Yep. And, uh, and you even have like a slight inflection of the voice. But it's not yes. like they're not giving him much dialogue. It's more just the, the uh, cigar. It's, it's really, it's Ted Pierce doing it and it's kind of throwaway, but it's it's enough of a... Just that feel, you know, yeah. that, that Jack Benny rhythm. But uh, it took a real mimic. And, and Lescouli had a, an affinity for just having a quality in his voice like Jack Benny because it was also very close to his own voice like that, you know, in, in the Grouch Club. Hello, Grouchers. And it wasn't <laughs> meant to be Jack Benny on the show, on the radio show, but uh, certainly Benny knew. And, and, in fact, before the Grouch Club ever went to air, on that Joe Penner show where he did Benny and Peter Lind Hayes did Fred Allen, they credit them at the end of the episode. Um, they not only credit Mel Blank and Phil Kramer, which is the most unusual in the late 30s, but he said, and Jack Lescouli as Jack Benny and Lind Hayes as Fred Allen, you know? <laughs> and it was like, again, there was another thing that, that confirmed voices for me that were in several cartoons like Toy Town Hall where Lind Hayes was hired to do the Fred Allen. You are great at segues because to- Toy Town Hall is next here. Uh, right. The Peter Lind Hayes... Um, of it all, this man seemed to be multifaceted in not just the Fred yeah. Allen camp. This guy was was pulled was for several different good, tunes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was he was possibly maybe not as authentic as some of Kent Rogers, but he was a very good impressionist. And uh, I've got him on a 1936 Eddie Cantor show where he runs his whole gamut and does Cab Calloway and all of these singing voices, as well as uh, uh, a good Crosby. And Bob Burns and people like this. So uh, yeah, another one. But he, he, but but Benny latched onto his Fred Allen, and mostly whenever Fred Allen was mimicked on Benny's show, it was Peter Lind Hayes, who just used to go by the name Lind Hayes in those days. Yeah, and and, right. and there was uh, there's there's he also does the Rudy Valley imitation in in this particular cartoon. Yeah, um, he did a Rudy Valley on the on the Cantor appearance as well. Yeah. yeah. And there was also another uh, Bennyite, Cliff Nazaro, doing Eddie Cantor, which that yes. that wasn't a far stretch for me because the double talks, if you just up the pitch yeah. a little bit, it sounds like Eddie Cantor a little bit. That's right. And and in that same episode from October forty four, where uh, Wilbur appears, uh, the Wally Mayer screwy squirrel voice, yeah. Cliff Nazaro is in that same one where he shows that he is also a, like a trained, almost operatic singer because. Uh, that's how he could do the singing voices of Crosby and Eddie Cantor. Yeah, and that's when Phil goes, "Why, wait, Jackson, why don't you give the kid a chance? And he goes, thanks, Uncle Phil. <laughs> Uncle yeah, Phil. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, that there's, um, there's, there's also the Toy Town Hall has one of this. I think it's the one that 
out of the three that I kind of sussed out where the the artists that they are imitating are just as obscure to the modern audience as the voice artists themselves. Right. Um, yeah. And I think mm -hmm. that that has a lot to do with the fact that it's Jack, Jack Benny seems to have permeated a lot of spaces in time as of as has George Burns. Oh yeah. Fred yeah. Allen hasn't had that same accommodation. No, but, no, he he and also he died in in the early days of television in 56 so he didn't have the longevity and his his comedy was more of an acquired taste it was an intellectual comedy um and Benny was a huge admirer of him for that reason. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, and, and also there were some others in Toy Town Hall that are forgotten because a lot of their, I guess their 30s radio shows simply haven't survived, like Ben Burney, the the orchestra leader. Yeah. And yet and yet, every audiences back then, you know, he was so well known for that uh, little catchphrase he had, yowza, yowza. So Ooh. help me, so help me. Guys and gals, yes. Actually, they yes. have um, they, so well <laughs> I think that they have Ben Bernie on a 1936 or seven Jack episode amid the feud, um, and it had yes. it, it was yes, a birthday appearance. So you can you could you could point that to somebody, but in the grand scheme of who right. he was, like on the same level of Kay Kaiser or these other band leaders yeah. that had their shows, it's not the mm -hmm. same. The other one being. Um, Rudy Valley, who I think that right. I don't think anybody really knows who Rudy Valley is apart from us and people in the yeah, that's right. world, you know, but that yeah. was the megaphone gags work for me. Uh, mm -hmm. But I learned about Valley through Charlie McCarthy, who had his own cartoon history attached yes, to Disney right. specifically. Um, right. The, and then there's vocal trios in these cartoons. Toy Town Hall specifically has the Lady and Red Singers. Yes. The amount, yes, that's right. the amount of these trios that came out of these cartoons, those were more out of the early years, correct? Like this was more mm -hmm. in the vein of the Merry Melodies and Silly Symphonies, um, or more specifically Merry Melodies. But. Yeah, pretty much a 1930s phenomenon. And by the 40s in, in at Warner Brothers, uh, the Sportsman Quartet was still on call, but, but they were only... Um, appearing pretty spasmodically by the late 40s you know yeah well and at that point they got jack show you know yeah oh yeah and and mel blank's own show as well uh they were the um the intermission singers so they were they were huge that, that them and the king's men mm -hmm. um they were the two go-to groups in fact uh, when i i interviewed thurl ravenscroft in during my research when he was in the original sportsman lineup before he went off to fight in the war. That shocked and, uh, me to read. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, he, he was the, the bass singer uh, for the early sportsman appearances in about 1941, 42 on Benny. Mm -hmm. And then uh, he formed the Mellow Men when he got back from the war because mm -hmm. uh, Gurney, Gurney Bell, who took over the bass singer in the sportsman, there was some dispute that Gurney Bell's wife had and she you know, made made life difficult for Jack, I think, because uh, she wanted to keep him back in the sportsman and not not let Thurl Ravenscroft back in. It's all very political. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, just to realize that that was a um, a kind of like in and out vocal group where some of the the members switched around. By the time you get to the lineup oh, yeah. that's in Jack's show, yeah. that 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 was a, a wonderful 
I guess it's something I could have found out on my own, but like it was interesting to read it in the context of this because then I started looking back to the Dover Boys um, for, right. for them singing the, the theme there prior. Um, right. Well, that was that was when Cyril Ravenscroft was in the group. Yeah. 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 And there was um, it also made me reappreciate the Dover Boys because I don't think I had appreciated that as a kid, but that is pretty <laughs> funny the way they're playing with old college humor. Um, yeah, and then oh, Dora dear, oh, Dora dear. <laughs> this the um the, those dastardly Tover boys. Mm. <laughs> it's, I like the smoke, the animation of the smoke, and how he's yes. kind of just sifting through it, and it's that pose <laughs> animation, and it's it's very like Chuck Jones is a genius when you look at his, oh yeah, his no, artwork. That was very man and very very aware of of sending up cliches, even when cliches weren't cliches. You know, he was yeah. so ahead of his time. Yeah. And also trying to, he, it's interesting to watch his like attempts at a Walt Disney with the, I think it was Squeaks the Mouse. Um, uh, right. Yeah. And then he, the Country Mouse stuff and then going off into where he would go in the 50s is an interesting arc. Yeah. I remember he, he, he became aware looking back at his work that he was very influenced, over influenced by Disney, but he said that was the only way he could learn that he said by, by the cartoon called Super Rabbit which was where Bugs is in a Superman costume. He said, that was the first one where I saw a preview with a real audience and there was heady laughter. And he said, that becomes like a drug. He said, from that point on, I, I became far more interested in the comedy rather than trying to be Walt Disney number two. Mm -hmm. No, that, and, and I'm glad he found that route because, yeah, you know, yeah. like what's opera doc, the Roadrunner, oh. um, the rabbit, ra rabbit fire, uh, rabbit seasoning, these the are trilogy, yeah. Yeah, the yeah, trilogy yeah. is that like that that's a thing where like I the older I get, the funnier it gets. It it oh yeah. It, it yeah. only grows with time and acclimates with time. Um Yeah, I think I think him in tandem with Mike Maltese, the writer, who was with him from nineteen forty six to about fifty seven, uh, they were just a great team. Maltese really do, does deserve some of the credit because uh, he was the wildest story man with a certain type of humor that went a bit dark sometimes like uh, the chow hound you know the dog what no gravy and, uh, <laughs> he has a he I, he also had a he, he also did some voices in the studio as well yeah, he did he, he again he he uh he like ted pierce um just had that flair being being comedy writers that uh, they they knew comedy and they they sometimes i think in the audition process with a voice they would end up saying, you know, didn't like any of those ones. I, and I think you grabbed it when you were demonstrating the voice, so you do it. So uh, Mike Maltese would do, a, of course, an Italian because that was his heritage. He did all those, those great, you know, like uh, that sort of dialect. <laughs> yeah, the, and, that uh, brings me to the dictators for a second because I did not realize right. that was him. Uh, I yes, just assumed that was, wow. <laughs> that one, because when he, uh, I think it's the second scene you see the Mussolini duck, but he's like right. doing... He, it's funny because I like to connect to where you find this in the modern age, but he's doing through the words, these nonsensical like words put together to create an Italian accent. What right. Peter Griffin does in when he's doing the bada ba boopy thing yeah, for Italian. <laughs> so it's like you're seeing like this connective tissue of like Michael Maltese kind of starts this nonsensical talk to create a language kind of vibe right um well then then of course they were doing it in vaudeville before mike maltese but he was such a an observer of that comedy and then later on sid caesar did it you know on the your show of shows mm -hmm. where he could 
he could do just nonsensical words that sounded like a Frenchman or a Swedish guy or something. Uh, and and it was so flowing. It was like a song. You know, and, and you actually believed it because he was such a convincing performer. And he said it was all just nonsense words. Yeah. He, just learned, he learned the art of double talk. Yeah. Mel Blanc did it differently when he did Adolf Hitler. And um, that was that was brilliant. In Russian Rhapsody. Oh, yeah. The Russian Rhapsody. Yeah. And you can hear samples of it for free without like if you if you can't afford the Blu-rays for stuff right away. Right. Uh, yeah. You can go to uh, one of the uh, good the new tenant sketches on Jack Benny. Um, where oh, yeah. they're listening yeah. to uh, different parts of the radio. Um, That's right. And yeah. um, uh, and I think they have him going, uh, oh, God, he's in a quiz program. I think he's in a quiz program. Um, That's right. And he goes like, That's wrong. Would you like for try? Would you like to try for two? Wrong. You call mm. me wrong? Schweinhund. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, I love how he does this with his voice. It starts with words and then devolves right. into barking. And you could yeah. you could hear the midpoint of where yeah. he, where he starts to go. And it's yeah. that's that's kind of the beauty of not not kind of it is the beauty of listening to these old time radio shows and connecting right. them to these voices. It proves to be the most fun. Uh, Sarah Berger oh, yeah. and B. Benadaret end up being the most fun for that for me because right. it's just an immediate connective point. Knowing that Cliff Nazaro was a part of these just kind of added to the proceedings. Yes, and, and occasionally they, when Cliff Nazaro on the Benny Show would do his double talk character, they would Tex Avery used that in that one cartoon, The Penguin Parade, I think it was, um, where he's the MC, mm -hmm. and um, and then he was also in the Goose Goes South. He was a, a driver who kept refusing um, to give someone a, a, a lift in the in the car. Uh, uh, I think it was Sarah Burner. But uh, he again, he was that double talk character. Mm -hmm. uh, perfect example yet again of uh, something that, that was heard on radio and used to crack Jack Benny up. Jack Benny loved Cliff Nazaro's double talk routines as much as he laughed at Jack, at Mel Blanc, you know? Yeah. Uh, no, he liked Cliff. He liked Artie Auerbach. Uh, yes. He, um, uh, I know he adored Remley, but Remley's, right. Re Remley's, Remley's a mood. <laughs> Remley's yes. not a person. <laughs> Remley's a mood. <laughs> um, yes. Although yes. We, I love, Laura started pointing out to me, our friend Laura, Le friend Laura Leibowitz, right. she pointed out to me how you can hear Remley for the first time. She's the one who pointed how you can hear him laughing. And yes, yes, I, I know that laugh. Yes. Yeah, now I can't not hear it. So yeah. it's it's. Well, have you 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 would have seen the the footage of that um, TV appearance of Phil Harris. This is your life. Yes, you can hear Remley sitting there in in the in the in the little uh, bleachers, and you can hear him laughing. Yeah, so you can see him laughing, and then you can hear him off camera when Jack comes on and does the big tribute to Phil. Yeah, and you can start <laughs> putting that kind of image in your head whenever you think of the. Uh, of the Benny program at large or any of these radio right. programs. And actually that um, the, like with more radio talk in mind, the, the final one that I selected to, to kind of go over for a second was Cuckoo Nut Grove because mm -hmm. this, this has a couple of, this has a question mark, but it also has an unknown. Uh, right. The Ben Bernie, Ned Sparks, Hugh Herbert laugh uh, are yeah. unknowns. Um, they are, and I, I, I'm almost sure it's a mimic that they recorded and and kept in the library because that that Hugh Herbert laugh, you know, you can hear it several different cartoons, and it's obviously the same take, but I still am unconvinced of who it was because mm. there were some mimics who even came before Danny Webb and Kent Rogers and all these ones, you know. 
that 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 brought a, uh, a question to my mind about would that would do you, to your based on what you found did it seem mm. like the studios would try to go for the same person for the same voice each time well once they once they had a successful one i think they they'd keep him in mind because uh, he said we'll we'll probably get that guy back again because that really got a big laugh in the theaters you know and uh, and a lot of it was um if they got a good report from various exhibitors across america they they'd say all right we're going to use bugs bunny again as a character or boy if that got a huge laugh uh, and it was mentioned in our little correspondence we're going to get that guy back again to do that impression you know yeah that uh brings to mind half the moments that i see andy divine imitated right uh, th th which I don't know who's ruining their vocal cords in that era <laughs> to talk like Andy, but yes, yes. God bless them. One of them, one of them was da Danny Webb, formerly yes. Dave Weber, but and Tex Avery did that one in in the My Little Buckaroo uh, mm -hmm. singing, singing the the song, singing that title song. Yeah, and it's it's because that's a very specific rasp you've got to hit. That's that's oh, a, it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> what was it now? This actually, this kind of like tangentially ties to Benny a little bit, but uh, mm. you were saying that one of the one of the voice actors was, um, or one of the players was able to imitate Rochester pretty good. Was it Mel? I think it was Mel. Like somebody was. Yeah, oh yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Because um, by the forties, where where uh, you see at the end of a couple of cartoons, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. Um, that's that's Mel Blank doing it, but uh, there was one other guy called Steve White who was a mimic who did uh, a Rochester voice, and I believe it was in some MGM cartoon that I can't think of the title. But as a as a as a Native American, but with a Rochester voice, I mean, you know, they were even sending themselves up and doing jokes that were you know, like double jokes. That sounds like a Blazing Saddles joke that's twenty years yeah, ahead yeah. of itself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you would have, I'm sure you would have heard that that Jack Benny episode where uh, Mel just ad-libbed after Rochester said, uh, <clears throat> Mel was a guy at the door and Rochester said, goodbye. And, and Mel just so, went, goodbye. I do remember that, <laughs> and, yeah. And the the audience cracked up and Benny cracked up and it was like, uh, I'm sure it wasn't, it was either rehearsed and, and said, keep that in. Or it was just on live to air. It was just like it just popped into. It would, I think I think the audience laughed at Rochester saying goodbye. Yeah. And so so Mel went as he was walking off mic. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me because they pulled that switch on him with Frank Nelson for the uh, Drew Poussin uh, bit. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah that's so right. They, yeah. they they pulled it every so often. They'd pull one under over Jack's uh, eyes, yeah. and they'd managed to get that 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 vibe in there but i uh you 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 brought to mind with the uh Im the the imitations of rochester and whatnot you've brought back to the the benny connection of it all um right yeah the the one that i wanted to bring to the table that wasn't kind of pre-thought out was the big bird cast um right yes hello again remember me Let's see you do this on your fiddle. <laughs> mm. 
Well, one more lesson, and I'll play the bee. Yeah. Now, this one uh, is funny because this has Dave Weber doing Jack and mm -hmm. Fred Allen and right. Walter Winchell and Harry Von Zell and a name that's going to mean nothing to anyone except from you, me, and Laura. Park your carcass. <laughs> uh, yes. And uh, Eddie Cantor. Um, but it's Dave Weber doing it. And uh, this is part of Columbia's series that that's it, it's so weird like that like i didn't realize columbia had a cartoon unit because it was never rebroadcast oh, yeah, that yeah. much Do you, can you talk a little bit about like well yeah the columbia the columbia cartoons were um that studio's own theatrical series of cartoons but they never apart from in the 1940s when they had the fox and the crow they never developed great lasting characters. So their cartoons simply haven't been revived until the era of YouTube, where you can post stuff from your collection up on, on for the world to see. Uh, but occasionally, but it was, it was a place where like Warner brothers, they used Dave Weber and a couple of other voice people a lot at Walter Lance at Columbia and at Warner brothers. That's where they got all of their work in cartoons before the war. And uh, Dave Weber, again, was a guy who he was a, mainly a dialect person. And in, in fact, in one interview I, we found in a newspaper with him, he talks about impersonations of celebrities as just another offshoot of dialects in terms of studying voice. Mm -hmm. So he was he was very professorial the way he studied uh, accents and so on. And he ended up being a dialect coach way back in the, in the days where I didn't think they used dialect coaches the way they do these days, you know. He was a coach on several movies. He taught Jeanette McDonald to do a Southern cracker dialect for some movie. <laughs> and, oh, just just tons of little things like this. But he was very good at certain impressions like Joe Penner and so on. And I think for this one, the Columbia guys just decided to get him to do all of these voices, apart from a couple of pickups where they got Cliff Nazaro in because Cliff Nazaro could do the singing of Eddie Cantor yeah. and Dave Webber did the speaking voice. Right. And you've got right. um, you've also got the rhythm rhythmettes um, as your vocal right. group. There is another of that series of vocal groups. The Kingsman was the one that stood out to me because of Fibber McGee, right. but yes. uh, but the I will say for Weber that I've never seen a cartoon where somebody's doing both Jack and Fred and pulling right. them both off supremely well yeah he does he does very good very good and um it it, it is unusual and in fact i'm surprised there were there wasn't more cartoons that took advantage of the feud because that feud did go on for quite a few years yeah you know? well it, ex uh, it extended up until fred's death but the really but, yeah yeah but the 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 meat of it with the b that's yeah. about half yeah. a season and right. never really yeah. stopped. It, it it seems to have halted around 1938, 1939. Yeah. Kind of picks back up, especially when Fred takes that year off. All of Fred's people come over to Jack's show for a couple of years. Um, yes. And then. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That then, was when Fred was ill. Yeah. Yeah. Fred was ill. And so I think it was uh, Minerva Pius. Minerva Pius. Yep. And uh, John, John Brown. John Brown. John Brown stayed in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a there. It's interesting to think about. At last, there's some evidence that I can point to about the feud being so popular that it would transcend into cartoons. Because right. it's it's one thing to say this is the biggest feud in radio history, 
It's mm-hmm. another thing to have evidence of it. Like, no, no, no. It was this big. Yeah. I, I can't show you love thy neighbor that well without digging yes. for copies, but you could find right. this on YouTube pretty accessibly. And I would have known that if I not read the book. And so that's right. one of yeah. the, to, to kind of wrap it around to the end of this, like one of the things that I love about the book is that I would look at the book, I would find a cartoon or two that I either hadn't watched before or hadn't seen in a while. Put down the right. book, watch the cartoon for seven minutes, then go back to the book. And I keep <laughs> doing that. And right. I keep going through it. And it and it kind of boggled my mind how many of these guys didn't have credit or didn't have mm. any form of recognition apart from maybe like just uh, mm-hmm. like these are comics, comics or something like that. These are just people that That's the industry right. knows really well. Radio um, Stooges, yeah. 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 As a as a voice artist yourself, is there are there things that you find kinship with with these unknown artists? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, over over forty years of doing this for a living, uh, I've done a lot of animation work here, and 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 a, a lot of it is is just the audition process and all the things I can relate to. I mean, somebody who reviewed my book said that. Uh, he comes from an insider's perspective, and I guess that has helped it. It's informed the book, I guess, but I never wrote it to to um, you know display me. It's, mm-hmm. it's all about them, and and I regard them uh, very much as people that uh, were influential on me. And so I really wanted to do it more as a very accurate tribute to not only their talents because they were uncredited. That was just industry policy, but also because of putting putting the whole thing together and showing how the the voice specialty industry really began um and, and became a thing yeah um and and the i think at one point in in i might, might be just in the notes section but uh what what blew my mind was when um the late ron hutchinson who was a vitaphone project guy um he found a a, a sheet from 1929 in new york where they were doing voices not for a cartoon but just for voices off screen of animal sounds and things and it, it it had like three guys including Bradley Barker who was mentioned for the Fleischer cartoons later in the 30s and even in 1929 they were listed as voice artists on this sheet of paper and it's like my god that expression existed back i thought i thought it was something that came along in like the 1980s where they were finally called voice artists a little bit of respect that that's that's mind blowing to me because voice mm. characterization is is an right. accurate portrayal um, it is very, yeah. But yeah. but it is like that. That's wonderful to know that the expression existed, um, right? Yeah. Do you yeah. now like I, this? This final question that I have for you might might seem unfair. I don't know because it's it's. I feel like one of the things that the book did that I think was very important was humanizing Mel Blanc, mm-hmm. uh, right. in a way that I was not prepared for. Um, right, and. There are stories about Mel being um uh you can you a little can see proprietorial. Proprietorial, <laughs> yeah. I I don't know yeah. why I'm tiptoeing over it, <laughs> but wow, it's, 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 it's Mel. Uh it is. It is. And I, I knew him and um and I, I, I think I, I hit the balance right because I, it didn't it didn't look like the author was being mean spirited. It was more just humanizing him, as you say. Oh yeah, no, um, it's it's not mean. Because I'm for nearly him. all praise for him, yeah. Yeah. There's a yeah. actually there was the story about um I think you were talking about um uh him and um, 
Freeberg? Freeberg, yeah. He was getting, yeah. uh, uh, and he said, don't let Shakespeare back into the recording sessions. Oh, that was no, that was Bill Scott. Bill yeah, Scott, the, the, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Bill Scott from Bullwinkle. And that, yeah, that, one, one of the great boys, man, yeah. Exactly. Um, I, think Mel, I think Mel did get a little threatened because uh, he had become so well known in the in the um, mid 40s as the man of a thousand voices even by the public thanks to the benny show and his voice characterization credit starting in 44 mm -hmm. uh, people were talking about him as the man of a thousand voices and i think he he actually resented when some little trade paper items mentioning freeberg and these people it was almost like uh is his turf being threatened already? You know, like, yeah. Uh, by these by these up, vo vocal upstarts, and and as Treg Brown quote said, uh, he didn't think Stan was in Mel's category. He thought he was talented, but not as talented as Mel. If so, there's a lot of different opinions and and perceptions that people had. Doris, Doris Butler, I think, said that he could do things that Mel couldn't do. But but when I knew Doris Butler, who was one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet, he was all praise for Mel, saying, "God, boy, his he he does things that I could never do." So it was like vice versa, you know. Yeah, I was, and yeah. that that kind of led to my curiosity of like, does does your image of Mel or your 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 own uh, admiration for Mel change the more you dig up about him, or is it like? Oh no, no, because I find it humanizes Jack Benny when we find out more about Jack that we didn't know before. Oh, sure, yeah. All of them were just so human. And being in showbiz and and having uh, reputations and all that, I think natural insecurity of showbiz is terrible in that sense. It's sort of like uh, <laughs> it's it's the unless you're under huge contract like Benny, you know, like, like he, and, he, and his fortune is made, if you're a work-a-day showbiz person, you're in a very insecure line of work because it's just phone calls and and uh, freelance and uh, and so therefore, if you're in showbiz, also you're uh, you're artistically expressing yourself, which means you're a very insecure person in many ways. But you're hoping for a career, so it's an insecure profession attracting insecure people. So if you know yeah. the, the dichotomy of that, um, and yet. Of course, by by that stage, Mel Blanc and people like Jack Benny had enormous confidence in what they'd achieved. So it was just little things that I just thought humanized it. It just made him flesh and blood instead of constantly praising him. Um, yeah. And uh, it was intentional. And even some of my criticisms of some of the cartoons were intentional. But I never wanted to come across like a smartass or, a, or a no. being um, mean-spirited. It was just trying to be realistic about the industry you know i i th i i think the exact opposite the when you get to the end of each chapter you give a summary more or less right. of where did the tunes end up going past this threshold that you've established and right, yeah. you brought up the de path uh warner brothers cartoons um mm -hmm. which i'd forgotten about because i've started rewatching i when i've rewatched in the last 10 or 15 years it's been 40s and 50s, yeah, right, maybe right. 30s. I forgot mm -hmm. about those DePath ones, and when I saw that black logo with the with the colored bars, uh, oh, uh, DePatty Freeling, yeah, yeah. DePatty Freeling, yeah. not not DePath, DePatty right. Freeling. When I saw right. those ones, I'd forgotten how different yeah. they are from the animation oh, yeah. that existed, and you could yeah. hear the quality of the voices changing. And you, you can, well, also Mel had had that awful accident too, so his voice for a while was didn't have its full strength back. Mm -hmm. But uh, but just the budgets were so low by then, and TV had really taken over, so that the theater theatricals were on their last legs. But boy, you know, 
they are a sorry bunch when you look at the classics of the 40s and and the glory years you know and and also like the energy that mel had in the 40s was just stunning he had like well that that was a guy who was able to jump from voice to voice on benny's program like it was nobody's business that's that's right. I, I and yet and yet the funny thing is in animation every voice was recorded separately so that they got several takes of each Daffy Duck line and all this and uh, so he was used to working both ways but because because of that <clears throat> that that experience they all had in those days of working in front of audiences they uh, they knew how to do that quick change thing as a, as a gimmick like he did at the beginning of his own radio show which was much weaker show of course but. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and I I remember how like he could jump from that um, low what he used to call his tuba voice, mm, yes, you know, yes. and uh, and um, and and go into that those yells that nobody else could do. That's one thing Doris Butler said. He said his yells. He said nobody can match Mel's yelling, <laughs> and uh, that that I think it was on one of those super fun tracks that he did where uh, <clears throat> it was a, a twenty second throwaway gag. In like a, a war movie, and uh, you hear this actor Byron Kane saying uh, <clears throat> to Mel Blank, who's the admiral or the in, is uh, uh, or captain, yeah, captain. Uh, there is a there's an enemy vessel approaching. Uh, uh, very well, bosun, take her down. Yes, but captain, do you think you heard me, bosun? Take her down. <laughs> but captain, this is a destroyer, a destroyer. Take her up. <laughs> and then you and then you just see the decibels. On the sound mix, just going <laughs> off the dial. I know that's 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 the problem on Zoom. It's like very easily distorted. But you know, I I the the one the scream that I will ever try to modulate accordingly if I ever put it into anything <laughs> is in the Christmas special with yes. Jack when he <laughs> when he sets the wrong button the last time, and it yeah. is it is just. It is defeating. It, it, that is my favorite Christmas special because it is one of the partially the TV it's one. Of, yeah, it's one of the it's darkest brilliant. endings ever of a Christmas. Oh God, show. yes. Oh, yeah, that, that's hilarious. Oh, but um, there's a uh, but in in a sort of a uh, uh, to connect this to the present because I think that that's something that's on people's minds um, with this show in particular. We try to find connective tissue and we try to find how mm-hmm. these influence the world of today. I think one of the big things that your book provides is the, the the origins of what we like to do on the internet now, which is find the voice behind our favorite characters on whatever show right. might be going on right now. Um, right. But also there is, uh, there, there's, there's a lesson about the appreciation of digging up this material that mm-hmm. uh, is so easily lost. Um, and also finding appreciation for the ones who have carried on these characters that we love so much. I, I loved right. that you, um, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Joe Alasky. Yes. I loved how you gave him a great shout out for his Daffy Duck because I love his Daffy Duck so much. Oh, yeah. And 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 uh, I know some of these guys. I, I knew Joe and uh, and I know Jeff Bergman. He's a, a lovely guy. And uh, and some of these people, uh, have they have a, a respect for the work that the, the original guys did so that they're trying to, like I am with with Bullwinkle and these ones, trying to um, keep them as authentic as they possibly are, and also keep them the way Bill Scott would have written a script, you know, yeah. so that uh, we become experts where we can even politely say to the director, <clears throat> "I think the line had worked better if," uh, or "I think Mel Blank would have done it like this," and they usually let you because of your experience. You know, you've you've got the leeway to to suggest that. 
do you uh do you find within uh the world then that we live in now where we have a lot of our legendary characters or like hero characters so to speak like uh, still being continually at use to this day do you find right. that their presence uh today has shifted towards irrelevance or do you find that they're still as relevant as ever it's like specifically the ones that burgeoned in the golden age yeah uh, i well <clears throat> time time marches on and and it's a, a a bit of a cruel thing but uh i i do think they they tried to do a bunch of looney tunes recently that matched the 1940s feel and in many cases they succeeded yeah and to me what's remarkable about them is that they went off network tv in in the year 2000 and and they've only really existed on dvds and blu-rays since then and yet those characters are so immortal that they are still known today by young people. Mm -hmm. That's pretty stunning in a world that's changed where people are more interested in um, a softly, softly approach so that you're not going to offend anyone. And therefore, modern cartoons are exemplified by characters like Dora the Explorer and people like that. So it's it's great that the the more hard-edged comedy of those classics still exists and uh, and is still appreciated. And most people... Even young people today still have a vague idea, even if they're not cartoon buffs or radio buffs like us, they still know who Popeye is or they still know who Yogi Bear and all these great characters are, you know? I think that there's a there's a beauty in that fact that whether it's resources like your book or if it's mm. as simple as going down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, um, yes, which, which yes. this did too many times <laughs> um but uh but uh because i didn't realize b benaderet was in movies i never bothered to look in further but i didn't realize she was in some prc films like some poverty row films but um she yeah, but they, she, they, that was all to augment their radio income i'm sure they, oh yeah you know. but it's, it's now now that's stuff for me to hunt down but those mm -hmm. characters now exist in this wonderful world of legend where they're virtually at our fingertips there are still warner brothers cartoons that are on youtube and compilations because the yes. the yep. copyright hasn't been fully claimed on them yet i think hollywood steps out right. is one of those ones you can find pretty easily um, you can and and of course even even though warner's guards all of that a bit more than some of the other studios uh, you, you can still see the Warner Brothers characters in clips from commercials where they were used for Tang and all of those things in the six, when the Bugs Bunny show was on in 1960. Mm -hmm. um, so the characters are, are out there and they're very accessible. And uh, and for those who want to spend the um, the, the bucks, uh, the, the Blu-rays and DVDs <clears throat> really were magnificent um, yeah. uh, restorations of them, you know. The Golden Collection DVDs still mm. hold up, oh, hold a prime spot. They are fantastic. It's fabulous. I was I was honored when um, back in gee, it must have been two thousand three, four, four or five, I think it was, that um, <clears throat> I was one of the talking heads on some of those little behind the tunes documentaries that they did like the singing frog and all of that yep because they got us all at the right time some of those people are, are gone now especially the older animators that they they interviewed for these things so um it's it's just been a, a great ride uh, in terms of um, the 30 years i've spent on this book and the fact that i'm still working in the industry on a reduced level because i'm an old guy now so <laughs> hey that, that's a that's a state of mind oh, it is that. a state of mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, keith on that note uh thank you again oh, for coming aboard pleasure. here um really quickly let people know where they can find the book and uh i guess the final question i would have is you have a lot of question marks here are we going to see more in the future 
Yeah, well, yes, I'm I'm still um, researching and uh, I've already um, could made a few corrections to things. Uh, so I'm building up a, a, a like a revised and expanded one that I'm hoping in. What I'm hoping for is a bit more of the people who are good at um, trawling through the old newspapers find a couple of answers to some of those mysteries that I've put at the end of volume two. <clears throat> and I, I think the information would probably come up very unexpectedly. And one day it might solve three or four cartoons that are outstanding. Like who is this one remaining voice at this studio, you know, uh, who does this great uh, character. Um, and there's still more to learn about all these people too, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, yeah, there will be more. There will be more to come, and uh, and I also I still want to work on other books too. I want to do a book about the great impressionists, um, like from the the sixties TV variety era, like Frank Gorshin and all of these great oh, guys. Uh, yeah, I love and uh, I Gorsh, One of my favorite memories of my life, Keith, was getting to see Frank do Say Goodnight Gracie. Um, oh, on right. stage. I never did see that. Yeah. He, my dad took me to the Buell Theater out here in Denver when I was wow. rather young. And, and that, oh my God, that I couldn't tell the difference as a kid. Yes. I was yeah. like, what the heck am I watching? This is George Burns. He's supposed to be dead. <laughs> yep. But that, it's, it's <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, and of course, it's a topic that's very close to the cartoon voice one anyway, because I've been. Again, like like being you know, on the on the inside, I've been a cartoon voice and I've been a, a nightclub impressionist. So so in that sense, uh, I, I get all the problems, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and the background behind it all, and 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 I understand some of the problems performers have in those fields where you've got to stay up to date, and yet and yet like in this century that we're living in now voices are so bland compared to the golden age that we love you know mm-hmm. you know you you think of you think of Brad Pitt and uh, and Ben Affleck and they they're all good actors but boy they don't have voices like John Wayne and Humphrey Bogart <laughs> yeah yeah that's actually like that's sort of in in tandem with this idea that the star system doesn't really exist the same yeah. way it, it's yeah. never really it's never really bounced in the same way that it did after the golden no. age ended. Like something no. was lost. And also I think, uh, the, the, as society has changed too, it's like this postmodern thing where everything, everything is uncool. It was old. Um, <laughs> and yet I love all that broad style of acting. But, uh, today you, you watch a show like, uh, say CSI Los Angeles and all the, the, um, the lead players on it, they're all, they're all kind of, uh, talking like this, uh, you know, everything, everything's, everything's got that real hyper cool sort of, you know, so there's no expression in, 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 that you can pick up on and imitate apart from doing that. <laughs> I, I, th- I find it the difference, like, cause I do like some modern cartoons that I've seen, oh, like, sure, like, yeah. but, but there's a, there's a discernible difference for what I would enjoy where I kind of mm. hear casual talk. Yeah, that's right. Versus hearing Mel Blanc scream into a microphone. Oh yeah, that, yeah. that's In the fact, difference. I think for like me. two generations, and and the producers and directors are all much younger than me now, so they've grown up with this more casual attitude. So naturally, you know, um, often sometimes I'll pull a voice at, a, at a, even just a vo- commercial VO or something, and they'll look at me like, "What planet are you from?" You know, <laughs> they just don't get that broad humor anymore. Unless they're like us. <laughs> what is yeah. that voice? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, let's face it, they they wouldn't understand a character like Jack Benny. Now cut please. that out. 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Keith. The book My pleasure. is available uh, through Bear Manor Media on digital, um, physical, um, and there's two and volumes. Also, uh, Amazon and the usual other suspects as well, but there is two volumes. Yeah, that's right. The second one is the reference volume with all the filmographies of these studios with the voices and what we've discovered so far. And the first one is the history of the, the voice specialty industry itself. So. Yeah, which, which is a history that you'll keep digging up from here to the yeah. end of time. And, and for your audience, uh, not only the cartoon buffs, but I think the vintage movie buffs and the radio buffs will definitely get something out of the book. Mm -hmm. I agree, yeah. absolutely. Especially with shows that we've talked about and that I've played oh, yeah. on occasion, or if they're fans of Attaboy Clarence out there who have liked these shows that you know, get presented on there, you're going right. to love digging into this. Keith, thank you so much again. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to get pleasure. you. Exactly. I'm going to have to have you back to talk about Faber, McGee, and Molly because that's something we didn't oh, get to. Her. But that hello, hello folks. <laughs> oh, sweetie pie, uh, hitting you, hitting you again, Wimple. Sweetie <laughs> my my big old my big old wife. <laughs> That's a trope. I don't know how how that kept persisting, but I love it. I, I do the love battle it. Wife. the <laughs> battle axe wife. But that but that gives us Dennis's again, mother. <laughs> yeah, that's like it's, that's like those same tropes that no longer uh, work for. Uh, a crazy little Jewish character like Kitzel in that, the battle axe wife. You know, yeah, it's like I think Kitzel. I, I, I was, I, I always feel like Schlepperman's a little harder, but Kitzel kind of lives Schlepper. in his own universe. Yeah. He's just like Kitzel's, just like yeah. my son. Of course, my son goes to Southern Methodist. Why not? Like, you gonna fight yeah. me on this? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and and same when you mentioned Parker Carcass too. And uh, again, unknown, unknown, and yet. If you mention his his real life sons, Albert Brooks and Bob Einstein, mm -hmm. well, you know, um, they people go, "You're kidding!" You know that guy. <laughs> like, yeah, he was a he was a great comic, and he was an original comedy writer too. Harry Einstein, the guy who played Pucky. So uh, there you go. It's just it's endless. It is. And yeah. speaking tangentially of Park Your Carcass, audience out there, uh, get ready because. I think the next episode and the next couple of episodes or so, you're going to be hearing the return of Laura Leibowitz on this show All to right, talk about right. the jazz singer. Uh, Great. We are going yeah. to be deep diving the world of Al Jolson because her love of Jolson is almost as strong as her love of Jack, which I found was like a late life discovery. Like, really? <laughs> Jolson? Well, I'll, 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 have to, I'll have to call in and say, Laura, oh, <laughs> I'm telling you, Laura. I want to thank you so much oh, for keeping my name up there, Laura. I might message you on the side and be like, dude, don't tell her nothing. <laughs> thank you so much, Keith. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. And thank you to all of your listeners. And uh, it's been most enjoyable. Thank you so much. Not a problem. And that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the show. You can find out more about us on the back half. And until next time. Good night, folks. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Ah.
Ha, ha, ha.